Welcome back to Takes by the Lake. Doug Lamarie's back after a two-week break. Sorry I wasn't with you guys for the past couple weeks. Uh, I had a had a Cavs preview pod set up that fell through, and then um, Bill Landis, one of our Ohio State beat writers, left, and I've been doing a lot of Ohio State stuff, and they lost to Purdue, and I was wound up with that, so I haven't been able to check in on the Browns. But guess what's happening right now as I record this? I have two great interviews already in the hopper. One with Rich Hammond of the Orange County Register talking all about how the Rams got Sean McVay, and we're going to talk about how the Browns can go about getting their Sean McVay. And the other is with Ben Solak, who just wrote a great story about matching the Browns coaching candidates to Baker Mayfield. So I talked to Ben about the three guys he wrote about, Matt Campbell, John Filippo, Lincoln Riley. Again, looking for their Sean McVay. But right now, I'm watching Hugh Jackson on first take. So we can do like a live play-by-play. We know Hugh had a very interesting interview with our Mary Kay Cabot from Cleveland.com on Thursday. I'm recording this part of this now, Friday morning. Hugh's wearing like a, a suit with uh, a white shirt. I like his tie. Um, what's he saying? See if he's saying anything mean. Ah, it sounds like he's making an excuse. Listen, I've written. Oh, he's smiling. Hugh's smiling. It's good to see him smile. I wrote what I needed to say about Hugh Jackson and about Jimmy Haslam this week. Um, I think what Hugh Jackson did to Cleveland, not just that he failed as a head coach, but what he did to Cleveland and to fans. And, and, and it's not just the record. It's not just 336-1. and one. It's how he got there. It's how he handled himself along the way. How he blamed everyone else. How he made excuses. How, how he, he knew he was stepping into a difficult situation and a rebuild, and he acts now like he had no idea what was coming. Um, People are making the point of what Kyle Shanahan and the Niners did on Thursday night, winning a game with a ninth-string quarterback, and Hugh Jackson complained about what he didn't have during 1-31. and And the thing with Hugh Jackson that I feel like he never understood is the idea that we knew it, Hugh. We knew it. We knew Stephen A is asking him a question. We knew it, Hugh. We had eyes. We all had eyes. We knew that wasn't a great roster. Nobody was expecting you to make the playoffs. But it wasn't a 1 in 15 0 and 16 team. But even if it was, you didn't have to you didn't have to play the victim along the way. You didn't have to point out all the shortcomings of everybody else while acting like there were none from you. We knew it, Hugh. The the excuses were written in. They were right there in the rebuild. You had a leash. You had time. People weren't expecting the Browns to compete for the playoffs for two years. And yet, every opportunity you have, you point out all, everything you had to deal with. All the mistakes that everyone else made. And it's just, it was time for it to end. And as I wrote, it's never been personal with Hugh Jackson because I, I don't have a personal relationship with Hugh Jackson. He was bad at his job and he blamed other people. And that's enough. That's too much. So I'm glad he's gone. I think there's a great opportunity ahead. And we're going to look ahead on this podcast. But I wanted to make sure that we had a final farewell to Hugh Jackson. Because this was not just another failed coach. He failed in a very special and spectacular way. And, and it's not just people in Cleveland. People around the league. People around the league see this guy as a blame artist, as an excuse maker, and Cleveland is is fortunate to be done with Hugh Jackson. So I'm, I'll watch the rest of First Take. I'm sure it'll be enlightening. No, it won't be enlightening. I know exactly. I could write the script for him right now, what he's saying. But I will tell you, I think there's an interesting time ahead. I don't really care that much about Greg Williams. John Dorsey said all we're worried about is the next eight games. I think the Browns should try to win every game. I think we're past the point of like trying to lose and, and rooting for losses for draft picks. I think that made sense the previous two years. What's the difference between, you know, once Hugh is making you stink, then whatever, get the draft pick. I think right now they're past that. I think they should try to win every game. Baker Mayfield should try to win every game. Um, and you know what? If, if they go 4-4 four and four in the second half and they get a worse draft pick, good. They're on their way back up now, especially because Hugh Jackson's gone. Um, but I do think this is all about who the coach is going to be next year. It's not going to be Greg Williams. 
And the guys here aren't going to be here. So whatever. Greg Williams can make up whatever lie he wants to make up. He's not part of the future. I don't. It doesn't matter. I have, I have, I have no interest in him, and I have no interest really in him like tough guying his way through the back half of a season and claiming that you know he could be the head coach of the of the Patriots if he wanted to be. Um, but let's talk about who could be here next year. There's there's things in place for the Browns, and regardless, just like with the one sixteen, it can't get worse. You can't get worse than Hugh Jackson. So the head coach of the Browns next year is going to be substantially better than the head coach of the Browns has been for the past three th- three seasons, and that is a good thing. Let's get to first, Rich Hammond. Great interview. Again, he's covered the Rams since they came back, um, and we're going to delve into how they went about getting Sean McVay and what that means for how the Browns can go about looking for a sharp mind to lead this franchise forward. Sean McVay, the youngest head coach in the NFL, the Rams are obviously having a spectacular season, um, and he's a big part of that. But so is their young quarterback and the other pieces uh, in place around them on the roster. So you can follow me on Twitter at Doug Maurice. Drop reviews for Takes by the Lake on iTunes. Um, read me at Cleveland.com. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode of Takes by the Lake. Rich Hammond first, then Ben Solak, and then I'll keep watching Hugh, and we'll see what he has to say. So happy to be joined on Takes by the Lake by Rich Hammond, the Los Angeles Rams beat writer for the Orange County Register. And Rich is going to take us through how the Rams got to this point. He's covered them since they came back to Southern California. So, Rich, I know you're sitting at practice. Thank you for your time. Where they are right now, Rich, where the Rams are as basically the leading Super Bowl contender in the NFL. Watching how this got put together with Jared Goff, with this roster, with Sean McVay, are you surprised they're at this point, or did you see this coming with the way they were assembling this team? I'm still a little bit surprised. The, the thing that I that I wondered about, you know, coming off of, of last year, where obviously they had a very high scoring offense, uh, won the division, made the playoffs. I wondered if there would be a little bit of regression, just almost a natural regression in terms of, you know, every defense now had a year's worth of film to watch on Sean McVay's offense, a year's worth of film on Jared Goff and how they used Todd Gurley and everything else. So I wondered if just, you know, knowing that there's some pretty smart coaches out there, I wondered if maybe there'd be a little bit of a a response or a little bit of a, a pushback to what the Rams did, but uh, the thing that I give Sean McVay immense credit for is, is he has evolved. It's, it's kind of like he he recognized that and realized that he had to stay a step ahead, and he's done that with new formations, using players in different ways, not using Todd Gurley exactly the same way he used him last year. So I, I didn't know whether that was going to happen, uh, but to, to me that's been a big key and uh, kind of a reason why they've been able to stay a step ahead. Of opposing defenses. Interesting. All right, so let's let's have you take us back, Rich. Again, you've been on it since the Rams came, Rams came back, and a million people have been making the comparisons between the Browns and the Rams. The Browns have a number one rookie quarterback. They just fired their head coach. When the Rams had Jared Goff as their rookie quarterback, he didn't have a great rookie year. They fired their head coach, Jeff Fisher. At that time, in that moment. Did, was there a belief that like, hey, this is the beginning of the Rams getting this right? Or did you feel like in that moment, oh man, is Goff ever going to develop? How are they going to get a decent coach here? What was it like in the moment when Jeff got fired, when Jeff Fisher got fired that year and Goff wasn't playing that great? Right, yeah, you, you knew it was kind of a very early kind of crux, you know, where you can go either way. You, you, your rookie quarterback, those are such formative years, those first couple of years, and uh, it didn't seem like Jared was progressing very well that, that first year. I, I don't think anybody could argue that, and, uh, you know, whether who you want to put it on exactly, whether you want to put it on Jeff Fisher or, or some of the offensive coaches. I mean, look, you know, Jeff takes a lot of heat himself, but, you know, their offensive coordinator that year was a, a former tight ends coach who, who had never been an NFL. Offensive coordinator. Uh, their quarterbacks coach was Chris Wanky, who obviously had some pretty good success as a player, but had never been a quarterbacks coach at any level before he took that job. So they didn't exactly put Jared Goff in a lot of position to succeed that rookie year. Plus, plus it, they just he just didn't have very good targets around him, didn't have very good players around him. Um, so you, you kind of felt like it was it was going to be a huge, huge decision. Whatever coach they brought in, whatever 
staff they got in, they brought in was really going to make or break Jared Goff. Like they were either going to turn him around and get him going, or you know Jared was just going to end up on the pile of you know former former high picks who who didn't pan out at quarterback, whoever you know, Jamarcus Russell, or whoever you want to put on that list. Uh, he was going to join them, so you didn't know. And and then they go and take a real you know high risk swing at a guy like Sean McVay and and it did raise eyebrows. You kind of thought, wow, this this is the guy you know that they're turning over their whole offense to, their quarterback to, everything. Uh, but obviously, we've seen how it worked out. But yeah, to answer your question directly, in, in those initial days, it was kind of like, wow, they they are certainly not going for the for the conservative, the the you know the 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 easy choice, you know, a veteran guy, they're taking a big swing at this. So, so you did wonder uh, immediately whether or not it was going to work. You you wrote a fascinating story um, that looked back on the hiring of Sean McVay, how they brought him yeah. in, how they took him to dinner. I'm going to make sure we link that on cleveland.com because Cleveland fans need to read that. <laughs> when you look and, and you see – how the Rams went through the process, right, of finding Sean McVay. What, what are the lessons learned there? Like, what's the yeah. secret for the Browns to find their Sean McVay? From the team president to the GM to the owner, what allowed the Rams to identify McVay and go get him? Yeah, I think you kind of have to start. I, I, I think it's unwise to just say, oh, I'm, I'm going to go find a young, bright offensive coordinator who's never been a coach before, and I, I'm just going to find that archetype or, or that person and plug them in. I think you really have to look at your team's situation. You know, Each team has to look at their own situation, what I mean. The Rams, in, in this particular case, you looked at the at the, the makeup of the team. It was They had some young players, but they also had some older players. They had Jeff Fisher, who had been a coach for you know two decades uh you can say a lot of good things about jeff fisher and what he did but it, it got stale here you know is basically what it was I, I mean it was a very there wasn't a lot of accountability things just kind of hummed along i mean it, you know everybody made fun of jeff fisher being seven and nine but that's pretty much what it was i mean they were just kind of you know existing on that plateau and, and never getting better and i i think the rams collectively took a step back and said you know what that's what we need to change we need to change that identity we need to change that mindset we need to change the energy in this building the accountability in this building uh it, so it wasn't just an x's and o's thing where it's like oh we need to go find a guy who's who's you know knows how to use his tight ends like that that really wasn't where it started it, it started with you know you we need to find a leader we need to find somebody who can bring some energy and accountability into this organization and and i think that was the starting point now the, the second part of that they, they also did look for guys with an offensive background that that's clear when when you look at the you know the people that they interviewed um across the board uh they knew they had jared goff they knew they had a young todd Gurley, uh and they knew they needed to find somebody who could figure out what to do with those two guys uh so that's really where it started was trying to find that combination of somebody who was going to turn around kind of the mood and the and the, the feeling in the building and also figure out how to use those two guys and you know they went through a few guys Sean McVay wasn't the only one that they interviewed they, they went through quite a few uh, I think five or six you know names on, on that list of, of people who got interviewed and you know Sean McVay is the one who really grabbed them I don't think going in they expected that to happen I, I think they you know probably looked at him and thought well you know hey it's a young guy let's you know let's see what he has to say maybe you know maybe we'll give him he'll give us some ideas or give us something to think about and then they really got blown away by him um, and so that that's what happened. So, you know, to, so to, to hear that teams are, are looking for, you know, quote unquote, the next John Bay, uh, I get it. And, and I understand that that's going to happen. But but I think you you really need to take a look at, you know, where your franchise is at, what's what's kind of the, the mood and the attitude in, in that building and uh, make your decisions based on that more than, you know, age experience and that sort of thing. A big question here in Cleveland is not just with Hugh Jackson and the coaching and what the failures there recently, but it's with the overall structure of the organization. I wrote a column this week, very critical of owner Jimmy Haslam. John Dorsey is a guy who I think people think is a good talent evaluator. I don't know if they're 100% sure about him in terms of like you know running the show, being in charge of that kind of thing. As the Rams were making this decision, right, within the structure of the organization – Les Snead, the GM, is it, is it Kevin Demoff? Am I saying his name right? The team president? Demoff, yeah. Demoff. Yeah. Yeah. The team president, then the ownership. 
What was sort of the view of the decision makers with the Rams at that point in time? And was there a belief like, yes, this is a good organization with a good structure that will get this right? Or were there a lot of questions about those decision makers as they went to look for a coach? Definitely a lot of questions. Um, and when you know they fired, uh, they fired Jeff Fisher in, in early December, I think it was of, of 2016, and, and there was no assurance that that Les was going to keep his job either. I mean, even after they fired uh, Jeff Fisher, you know, Kevin Demoff came out and said, "Hey, we're still looking at all parts of the organization." They didn't. They didn't give Les Snead the the thumbs up or the stamp of approval even at that point. So you, you almost wondered whether this guy was a lame duck who who was going to be in there making the you know helping to make the decision. Now I think behind the scenes it was a little bit of a different story. I, I think they kind of had made up their mind that they were going to keep Les, that they were going to you know give him another couple of years to uh, you know with a different coach. But uh, no, to to get back to your question directly. I, I, if you ask the fan base at that point, I don't think there was a lot of confidence a, a, at all. I mean, people in LA obviously were still getting to know that group. They, they'd only been in town for for less than a year, but you, you know, you talk to Rams fans who followed the team back in St. Louis. I mean, this is basically the same group that that going back hired Jeff Fisher before that. You know, hired Steve Spagnola and, and you know a couple other guys. So it's not like they'd had a great track record over the past you know seven, six or seven years of, of hiring coaches. So yeah, I think there was that feeling of oh boy, here we go again. You know who's who's going to be the you know the next one coming in here. But then when you saw the names that were starting to come out as candidates, as people who were being interviewed, yeah, I think you kind of looked at it and said, okay, they're they're going a little bit in a different direction with this. You know, they're they're not just going to go hire the next Jeff Fisher or the next you know retread coach who, who just got fired by some other team. Um, I think you kind of see it from the beginning that they had a different mindset, maybe uh, a different attitude about it. But but. No, by no means did did anybody think that uh, you know they were going to be a, a slam dunk with their decision. And even when they announced Sean McVay, I mean, obviously this is getting you know a good a good amount of uh, you know revisionist history or whatever because it's turned out so well. Uh, but you know, you you go back at the reaction in January of 2017, and, and it was far from unanimous. I mean, there were there's still a fair number of people going, "What are you doing? You know, how, how can you how can you hand over your franchise to a 31 year old guy who's, who's never been a head coach before?" So, so yeah, I, I think there was a, a very, very fair and, and a good amount of, of, of skepticism at that point. Rich, the the, the thing that the, I, is a clear difference, it seems like, at the moment with the Browns and the Rams is that, again, that Kevin Demoff role of team president, right? Do both yeah. – do, do Les Snead and Sean McVay at this point – both report to him separately, and then the team president is the conduit to ownership? Or what's the power structure with the Rams? Yeah, that, that's pretty much how it goes. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit different now. Like, you know, Jeff Fisher was always a little bit murky in terms of, of how that went. And, and I didn't cover the team, but, uh, you know, obviously in St. Louis. But, I mean, you know, back then in 2012, they hired Fisher before they hired Sneed. So there, there was always kind of this this kind of murky thing. Okay, who, who really is, you know, over the top of the other one in terms of uh, uh, personnel and, and reporting and that sort of thing. So I, I think what you're seeing now in, in the last, you know, year and a half years, yeah, a, a more traditional type structure, I guess you could say. Um, you know, Kevin is, is the first to say that they work hand in hand. It's, it's not like he's sitting there with a rubber stamp going, yes, no, you know, maybe, I'll tell you later. Um, it's, it's very much kind of a conversational kind of, you know, group approach, whether it comes to the, the draft or free agency. Um, you know, even Stan Kroenke, you know, gets involved when, when they were trying to figure out what, what was going on with Aaron Donald and, and how to get him signed. I mean, you know, Stan uh, for, for all the reputation he gets as being kind of a, you know, hands-off kind of a loose kind of guy. Um, he, he does get involved and he certainly is, is kept aware of, of what's going on. But but yeah, I, I would say over the last you know year and a half year, I, I think that's transitioned uh, probably a little bit more stability, probably a little a little bit more of that traditional structure uh, than, than what you saw in the past. Okay. I mean, the structure is such a, a topic of conversation here because the Browns have had such infighting between multiple GMs and multiple coaches because they both report separately straight to the owner, and right. you end up fighting for the owner's ear, and you're not on the same page a lot of times. I'm hoping that they go to some kind of different structure where they let the GM 
hire the coach, you know, and you, you streamline that a little bit. But it seems like with the Rams, the, the, the GM didn't hire the coach by himself. It wasn't, a, I mean, Les Snead might, sounds like it was lucky to keep his job. It's not like he just decided right. on Sean McVay. So, um, right. and, and yeah, what just, just to follow on that, I mean, I, I think what you're talking about is there's a part of that, what, what happened. And, and I don't know, again, you, you talk to different people, you hear different things, but you know, at the end there with, with Jeff Fisher and Les Snead, it certainly didn't seem like it was going very well. And, yeah. and I don't know whether it descended to the point exactly what you're talking about, whether, you know, where it's, you know, different people trying to, whatever, going behind each other's back. But they certainly didn't seem like they were on the same page, let's put it that way. Okay. And uh, it, it's, it's a much different feel now, whether that's by design, I don't know, uh, or whether it just kind of has happened organically because, you know, the GM was able to be a part of the, the hiring process. So it's always a little bit weird to me when that was done separately um and and you know when you hire a coach before you hire a gm it, i think it sends kind of a weird message uh but yeah in this case uh you know everybody seems to be uh, on the same page all right so as the browns search for sean mcveigh how much yeah the, the rams have jared goff they have todd Gurley, they have good defensive players they have acquired weapons at receiver how much how much is this sean mcveigh or how much would another coach who maybe isn't – I mean, Sean McVay seems like a genius from afar. Would another coach who was good, solid, but not great, would the Rams still be really good? Or as the Browns look for a coach to lead this, how much credit do you think directly goes to the coach that, yes, you have good players, yeah. but is this Sean McVay getting the Rams over the top? Or would be would they be close to this anyway because Goff and Gurley and everyone else? Yeah, I, I want to be careful how I answer this because you know, this thing is a podcast. It's not going to get parsed up, but <laughs> but I, I think I don't want to say he gets too much credit. But I, I think when you look at it from the outside, maybe, maybe other factors don't get enough credit. Right? Maybe maybe that would be the best way to put it because you, a lot of people say, well. You know, look at how much difference, you know, the Rams made from 2016 to 2017. You know, Sean McVay is a genius, blah, blah, blah. And that's, I, I'm not diminishing any of that. But also look at the roster. I mean, look at the roster from 2016 to 2017. They brought in Andrew Whitworth, who arguably at the time and maybe still is the best left tackle in the game. Uh, they brought in a, a veteran center, John Sullivan, who really stabilized the, the whole offensive line with his leadership and communication. They brought in Robert Woods. They've drafted Cooper Cup. They traded for Sammy Watkins. That didn't work out that great, but it was an upgrade. They really made that roster better. Now, you can say Sean McVay knew what to do with that, and maybe not every coach would know what to do with that. Uh, but it wasn't just like they put Sean McVay in that same room with that same roster and said, good luck, you know, fix this. Uh, they, they gave him stuff to, to work with. They, they certainly gave him upgrades. And, and they did it again this year, you know, bringing in Brandon Cooks. So I, I think that maybe doesn't get enough credit or talked about quite as much. Uh, the fact that they, they did upgrade that team. Um, so that they made Sean's life easier. Now you can just you can tell from watching OTAs that year in in 2017. You could tell that it was different. Just the okay. structure of the offense. You you could tell that guys were being put in position. I'll, I'll give you one. Not not to ramble. I'll, I'll, I'll end on this one. Uh, uh, Jeff Fisher didn't have Todd Gurley on the field on third downs. I, I don't know why, if I could do one more interview with him, that's probably what I would ask him. They took Todd Gurley off the field on third down and put Benny Cunningham on the field. Sean McVay came in, looked at Todd Gurley and said, hey, you know what? This guy can catch passes, too. And put him out there in, in all situations. Uh, first year with, with Sean McVay, Todd Gurley is the leading receiver on the Rams. So wow. that's one where you yep. look at and say, well, clearly Sean McVay was able to come in and look at that, look at the guys that he had and improve them and, and design an offense that could improve them. So absolutely, undeniably, he did that. But, but I think you also have to look at some of the upgrades that they made. Well, I will tell you, misusing the talent on your roster is a very familiar thing to Cleveland Browns fans as well. <laughs> That sounds very, very familiar. Um, I'll let you out of here in, in a second here, Rich. It seems like in the end, if I'm looking for a magic formula for how this worked to get Sean McVay, is the main message to be open-minded, cast a pretty big net, look, you know, be, be open to different kinds of candidates, and then maybe you just wait to get wowed. I mean, it feels like to me, I think the story was back when the yeah. Pittsburgh Steelers hired Mike Tomlin. You know, he was a young guy 
who maybe people thought wasn't quite ready for that step, but when they interviewed him, they were like, this is the guy. Is that it? Is there some component of luck here, but maybe you just have to make yourself open to that luck? Oh, no, no question. No question. I, I, I don't think that's, there's any doubt in that. I mean, you it, you know, the timing has to be right. And, and yeah, you, you never know. I mean, you absolutely never know. And, uh, you know, there's no guarantee either. Look, I, you know, I mean, as, as much as you, uh, you know, can, can look at what Sean's done in the last year and a half and be wowed by it. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not going in the Hall of Fame just yet. Right. Uh, but you, you can't argue, you know, with what he's done over, over the past year and a half. But, yeah, I, I, I agree with all of those. But, you know, the only other thing I would add to it is just I think maybe doing some self-analysis in, in, in your own uh, in your own room, your own locker room, and saying, hey, you know what, what, is, what do these guys need? Because, you know, we talked a lot about X's and O's and how to use players and designing your offense and that sort of thing. But, you know, the, the thing that Sean really did right away is just to get those guys to believe. And whether that's, you know, there's there's almost that intangible quality of, of leadership that, that you can't really, um, you know, you can't really put on paper sometimes, or you can't really describe to somebody. But but you know it when a guy gets in front of the room and, and it's just okay. This is our leader. This is the guy we're going to follow. We're going to believe in him. Whatever he says, we're we're on board with it and Sean McVay was able to do that with those guys right away in, in a way that Jeff Fisher wasn't and and it was that kind of refreshment I think that they needed that might not be the same in every uh, franchise and it, it might that might not be what's needed sometimes maybe in some cases it is strictly hey we need a better defensive coach or we need a better offensive coach it's not maybe leadership wasn't the problem in this case I, I think it was and uh, they were able to identify somebody who, who could not only bring that leadership but but also improve the the on-field product leadership is on the list of problems very near the top of the list of problems in Cleveland Rich I will assure you, oh, there you go. final 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 question and I promise I'll let you go after this we've talked so much about Sean McBay but here in Cleveland fans are looking at Baker Mayfield he had a couple really good games at the start hasn't been as good lately what's your advice in terms of having watched Jared Goff grow now over three seasons how different is he from his rookie year and I don't know. What's the advice for Browns fans of like, you know, you, you look for things, but you don't want to overdo it with the rookie quarterback. How much, you know, normal progression is there that then they just work it out in year two and year three? Or are there certain things Jared Goff did to get better? Yeah, there is. I think looking at it right away, I think the physical skills were there. I mean, nobody looked at Jared Goff even when he went 0-7 as a rookie and said, oh, his footwork is really terrible, or oh, that release is just awful. He's never going to be able to make throws the way that he did. And I think it was those things that made people more confident here. It wasn't like, even though he was struggling, it didn't look like things that were unfixable, if that if that makes sense. It didn't look like a guy you just, you know, you brought you bought a lemon off the off the, off the used car market. Um, you, you, you looked at him and thought, okay, the physical skills are there. Um, it's just the, there needs to be a little bit of a progression. Jared, I think, um, maybe a little bit unique in terms of just nothing seemed to phase him. You know, I, I think so much of it with these young quarterbacks is is mental. You know, these guys are all super competitive. I know Baker is, you know, probably at the top of that list of guys who they aren't used to losing. They aren't used to not having success. They aren't used to, you know, individual struggles a little bit. But but they have to be able to accept that. They have to be able to say, you know what, I'm a rookie. I'm 21, 22 years old. The, the world isn't at my feet. Um, I, I need to, you know, suffer through some of these tough times and, and you know, trust that they're going to get better. Uh, I think a lot of these young guys maybe get overwhelmed at first, you know, when, when they don't have success right away and go, oh boy, you know, my, my world's falling apart. I don't think Jared did that. I, I think he kind of all along just kind of said, hey, you know what, struggling, going to get better, going to work at this, you know, and, and he did. And, and he's kind of had that same attitude throughout. And, you know, really, when you listen to his interviews now, they're not all that different than when, when, what they were in 2016 when, when he was struggling. Kind of says the same things, kind of gives the same self-analysis. Uh, but, you know, he, he was just able to stick with it and, uh, you know, fortunately for him, run into a coach and, and run into some, some teammates who, who helped him accelerate that process a little bit. God, that sounds familiar again, Rich. I mean, nobody in Cleveland is saying, oh, Baker Mayfield, you know, can't do this, can't do that. It's just a matter of progressing right. and, and maybe getting the right people around him. Rich Hammond. Yeah, from- and I think that's just a, you know, yeah, yeah. a period on that. I think maybe that's where teams, you know, some of these young quarterbacks come in. And, and 
I'm not saying people give up on them too early, but it's kind of like you get that very small sample size and you go, you throw up your hands and you go, oh, this guy's a bust. It's not going to work. It's never going to work. Well, you know, kind of give it a little time. And, and these guys have to give themselves a little time too to, to, to realize that it's, it's not just going to happen magically right at the start. So uh, from everything I've seen of Baker, you know, I, I think I put him in that same category. And it's just, uh, you know, for his sake, I, I hope he has that trust in himself. And, and for his sake, I, I hope he gets a good coach. Fingers crossed, Rich. Fingers crossed. Uh, Rich Hammond from the Orange County Register. Tremendous insight. I think you have uh, given Browns fans a roadmap and eased their minds and given them some hope, and that's what they need right now. Um, it's not It's not magic. It's not easy. You need some luck involved in this, but I do think there's a way that a team can go through a process, and even people who have made bad decisions before, if you're open-minded and you self-evaluate, you have a chance to make a good decision now. So, um, Rich, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'll make sure we we, uh, we point people to this story that was just so fascinating about how this all came together with Sean McVay hanging out with Wolfgang Puck, right? I mean, that was really good. Was that a fun it's story a, to write? It's a uniquely L.A. story for sure. But, yeah, hopefully there's some lessons in there. And, uh, yeah, good, good luck to all the, the Browns fans out there. I, I know it's not easy, but, uh, but hang in there. Rich Hammond, thank you for your time, and uh, good luck rest of the season. Joined now on Takes by the Lake by Ben Solak, who who wrote a story that really caught my eye and a lot of people's attention uh, this week. Wrote it for Draft Network, and it is called Matching the Next Browns Head Coach with Baker Mayfield. So I wanted to get Ben on. He was kind enough to join us. Ben, can you just give our listeners here in Cleveland some of your background, first of all, of... Uh, of your your career writing about football, who you write for now, and I know you had a really good John D. Filippo story last year that I was reading too. So what what are you what's keeping you busy right now? Yeah, it's funny. I, I seem to end up writing about Cleveland people whether or not I want to. They just kind of <laughs> end up over there. Uh, which I, I cover the Eagles and have for the past two years, and so uh, the Carson Wentz trade has been a topic for the past two years now. So I've been doing that. Uh, and then I also, I cover the NFL draft at the Draft Network, and I'm the author of a, of a quarterback a document, a quarterback prospectus, which is called Contextualized Quarterbacking. And that's a document where uh, all the, uh, the throws a quarterback makes in his senior year, I go through them, and they're charted to better understand how good that quarterback really is. And so a lot of uh, the data that I have on Baker Mayfield and the way he fits into different offenses comes from that. And so, uh, yeah, like you said, I've got the, the background on Filippo from when he was here in Philadelphia, and they all really loved him. And then I've got uh, a lot of Baker Mayfield and Lincoln Riley's offense from uh, when he was playing there in Oklahoma. So that's where a lot of my stuff is now, the draft network for the draft, the Bleeding Green Nation for the Eagles. Uh, but I, I just seem to, I can't shake the Cleveland Browns, man. They're fun to write about. They're an interesting franchise. I tell people that just because they're terrible doesn't mean they're boring. They're actually interesting. Like, I know oh, people... I People get beaten down by the losing, but like there's some stuff bubbling here now, Ben, right? There's some stuff percolating that when you look at Baker, and we'll get into your article, but when you look at Baker and you studied him the way you did, he's got a chance, right? Oh, certainly. And, and, uh, and actually, in the wake of Cleveland's first two rounds of drafting, where it was Baker, Nick Chubb, and then Austin Corbett, the left tackle out of Nevada, uh, I wrote a piece on Cleveland, uh, which was simply that there's a very clear culture shift that's going on here. You know, Baker is a guy you believe in to win because Baker, by his own admonition, just hates losing. He's just an angry person when he loses. He's a, a passionate and, and driven young man who, when he loses, is personally offended. And Cleveland needed something like that. You know, Cleveland was at a point where you know, one in 31 was the record coming in from Hugh Jackson when Baker Mayfield was drafted. And they kind of needed a player who just wasn't going to stand for that no matter what. Cleveland's so interesting uh, because at least like a, a draft guy like me, Cleveland's kind of like the Petri dish. You know, Cleveland's the place where everybody's just trying something because they got to get this team off the ground somehow. So it's that spot where so many interesting and different things are going on from a player personnel perspective and from a developmental perspective. And so obviously like you've got a coaching change now and we got to see what that does. But the opportunity to marry Baker Mayfield, a stellar talent, uh, uh, an individual personality with a head coach who really can get the most out of him, you know, this is uh, this is probably the best spot Cleveland's been in in the past few years. And so that there's a lot of optimism to be had. I really believe that. 
So Ben, when when you wrote this article, uh, you you focused on three head coaching candidates, which are three very popular names right now, and Lincoln Riley, John D. Filippo, and Matt Campbell. But before we get into the specifics of this article, which explains so much, when you look at Baker Mayfield, we know he needs a good coach, right? He needs a good leader. He needs a guy who's going to set the right tone, have the right culture, have good assistance. But of, uh, of course he needs a good coach. But how important is the fit offensively in your mind? Do you think Baker Mayfield can succeed with a wide variety of offensive schemes? Or is there a certain style of play that it would behoove the Browns to get a coach who's going to run this kind of offense? Because there's a very specific kind of offense that Baker Mayfield would, would have the greatest success in. Yeah, so I think the, there's there's one idea I would stay away from as far as an offensive scheme, and then everything else is kind of on the table. I don't think you want Baker running the New England Patriots style of offense. I don't think you want him running kind of a strict uh, timing style of offense where everything is decided kind of pre-snap, and you're going to pick on a matchup, and then you're just going to like dink and dunk it, and you're going to execute everything by the amount of steps a receiver takes, the amount of steps in the drop for the quarterback, and it's all going to be very regimented and controlled. Because one of Baker's greatest strengths is his improvisation ability. right? And even he might even be very capable of being such a timing-oriented quarterback, but simply that's something you, you saw very little of in college, and there's no reason to take him out of what he's successful in to see if he's successful in that. So anybody like you know like uh, McDaniels goes on the market, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily bring McDaniels in. Obviously, the Patriots have always been good at kind of changing their offense to best fit their personnel. And I think McDaniels is a good offensive mind. But obviously there's head coaching questions in general with McDaniels. Anybody from that kind of a tree worries me a little bit. But when we talk about, oh, you know, uh, core yell offenses and air offenses like uh, Carolina, Kansas City, we talk about West Coast offenses and New York, you know, and we talk about uh, spread offenses, Philadelphia, all of these are on the table for Baker. It's very important to note that there isn't a throw in the field Baker can't make. People had arm strength questions about him coming out, which to me were entirely unfounded. He's got a, he's got a rocket. He doesn't have the best zip on the planet. It's more than fine. Uh, and then secondly, and this is what, what's really important, coming out of that Lincoln-Riley offense, Baker Mayfield was still attempting a very high amount of tight window throws. He was still attacking tight windows. It wasn't like everything was wide open. And uh, Baker Mayfield was also responsible for getting beyond his first read very frequently. Baker Mayfield, it wasn't just, oh, RPO game and take the handoff and throw it to the one route that's active. It wasn't like, you know, a Baylor offense where it's just, you know, there's one guy you're looking at and wherever he gets open, you just throw it to him. No, he had multiple reads. And it was mostly half-field stuff, but then that's more than half-field. Just give him two or three routes, and he can read that, and he can make a safety wrong, and he can hit the correct guy. Baker's a smart dude. So every system is really on the table. I think he's much more proven, you know, a kind of a spread West Coast ideas where he's more comfortable. And that's where you're going to get uh, John Filippo, Lincoln Riley, even Matt Campbell. Those guys fall very much into spread West Coast ideas. To me, that's home for Baker Mayfield. You know he can be successful in those systems. Let's start with Matt Campbell first. He was the guy you wrote about third in your article, and, and you... Mentioned the idea of, you know, there's a lot of people talking about bringing the college offenses to the NFL. We've seen that a lot before with college coaches coming in. But you mentioned the idea that, that you think maybe Nick Chubb would be good for Matt Campbell. But you thought if Matt Campbell from Iowa State um, was the choice, he would need a, an offensive coordinator with some NFL experience as well. What, what, do you, what do you maybe like about the Matt Campbell idea if that would somehow be the way the Browns would go? Yeah, so Campbell's an interesting one because Campbell's offense at Iowa State, to what we've seen at this point, and Campbell's been at Iowa State for two and a half years, and he's 15 and 7, right? And so what we've seen from Campbell at Iowa State is a huge quarterback rotation, right? He's constantly pouring different guys in there, and his system has kind of gotten to the point where he wants to be able to plug in any quarterback and it still works. Because Iowa State isn't a recruiting hotbed, and he hasn't really been able to get in a key quarterback recruit yet. And he just brought in a redshirt freshman named Brock Purdy, who's been playing pretty well for them. So we might see some more stability there, and the offense might get more complex. But really, uh, it's a very horizontal spread in the ideas of Urban Meyer, who uh, Meyer was at Bowling Green, and 
right when Meyer left Bowling Green to go coach Utah in the early 2000s, Matt Campbell went to Bowling Green. And so while the Urban Meyer system was still there, that was one of, uh, that was one of Campbell's first coaching opportunities was in that Meyer system in Bowling Green. So when I say horizontal spread, it's a lot of RPO game. It's a lot of bubble screens. It's a lot of quick, like what we call like looky slants, right? Like one step and go. A lot of just smoke routes. Everything is very short, and you're just getting the ball out of the quarterback's hands into space for the guy who can run, and then you're letting him go. Whenever it's down the field, typically it's just a boundary go route, and you're trying to throw a guy open one-on-one. Just either hit him back shoulder or hit him down the field. Sometimes they run out the slot. If we're talking about you know, levels concepts, like a basic high-low read across the middle. It really isn't there what we see in the Iowa State offense. Campbell's background is as a running game coordinator. He was at such in Toledo, and he was in Bowling Green as well. He loves to use single-back power, and he loves to get quarterback reads and tackle dart and all these really fun spread ideas that I think would help Nick Chubb out a ton. I think Nick Chubb would really have a great, great, you know, young career under Campbell's tutelage. Campbell's been very oriented on running games in the past. But he doesn't have uh, a lot of evidence as to what he would do as a passing game coordinating coach that I can lean on to say this makes sense for Baker. If they just come run that horizontal spread, I think you're minimizing the value of Baker's tight window ability. I think you're minimizing the value of how well he reads down the field. Uh, so it would make sense to me that Campbell would bring in a more pro style of a passing attack coordinator. A guy like John Morton, who was fired by New York last year, I think makes a ton of sense in that regard. Uh, Ken Zampese, your quarterback's coach, has offensive coordinating experience that maybe Zampezi is the guy you want to go for. Uh, and, and one of these guys could potentially uh, open up the offense and kind of be a good marriage there. Campbell's a great dude. Uh, he's, he's, he's a huge culture guy. There's just not a ton of evidence as to what his ideal passing game looks like yet. So I'm not positive what he would do with Baker. It's a tough question to answer. All right, let's go to Lincoln Riley next. And that's a popular name. And, and, and I want to go to him next just because I think it's very possible he wouldn't take it. Right, that he loves Baker. They have a great relationship, but right. that guy's got a really good gig at Oklahoma. He's making a lot of money, and he's going to have a million different opportunities whenever he wants to leave. I don't know that he would leave for the first opportunity in the NFL. But if he did, you made a point in your article that that yes, Lincoln Riley is a college coach, but it but it's not really a college offense. It's it's a it's an offense that brings in a lot of different things, and it seems to me that yeah. you think. You think it would transition. Obviously, Baker knows it. It's the offense Baker ran. But even beyond that, it seems to me that you think it would transition very well to the NFL. Is that right? Oh, certainly. I mean, so you've got what what the Lincoln-Riley offense is predicated on. And this is what makes me believe he's a good coordinator. It's predicated on personnel, and it's not predicated on scheme. It's not, I'm Lincoln-Riley, I run this. You have to play in it. It's I'm Lincoln Riley. You're my team. I'm going to figure out what offense works best here. So when Riley first went back to Oklahoma in 2014 at a time, Trevor Knight's the quarterback there, and they've got D.D. Westbrook and Sterling Shepard, a lot of these slot machine-style guys. And, and Knight wasn't the best quarterback. It wasn't super accurate. So a lot of the depth of target was short. It was just quick stuff to the slots. And then it was a ton of quarterback runs. Uh, and then Baker gets in there. Baker's got the livest arm. Uh, of the quarterbacks that, that Lincoln Riley seen at Oklahoma. And you've got Marquise Brown, who's a burner, and CeeDee Lamb, this huge target on the outside. Mark Andrews, a great flex tight end. And all of a sudden, you know, it's a much more open passing attack, and there's air raid ideas, and there's West Coast ideas. You know, he's picking and choosing little stuff that he likes. And now it's, it's Kyler Murray back there. Murray can fling it down the field. They're not afraid of that, but it's so much quarterback run stuff because Murray's probably the best athlete he's had back there. So he's willing to change his play calls. The ideas are similar, but willing to change his play calling to fit his personnel. So I think a couple things that we noticed when Baker Mayfield was back there. Number one, heavy, heavy, heavy use of play action. Not RPO, play action. It would Baker turn his back to, to, the, to the, uh, the defense, show the ball, and then roll it out. Or he'd be in shotgun, show the ball, and then pull it because it's been play action. Letting get those linebackers pulled up so Baker can read the safeties. Number two, heavy amount of target over the middle, which... College offenses, like that horizontal spread I talked about with Matt Campbell, that's outside stuff. That's outside the numbers. That's getting the ball in space. When I see such a, a, a big target share in the middle, to me that's saying that this isn't a very traditional college offense. You know, the middle is where all the players are. It's where the defense is. And so you're really letting your quarterback, you trust him to throw the ball in tight windows, like I've been saying. So, yeah, to me it's a, it's a play action, shotgun, 
just spread offense. It is not terribly different from what Philadelphia does. It really is. It, 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 it's obviously going to have college ideas, but it's more reminiscent of these pro-spread styles that we've been seeing really proliferate the past few years than it is to like what Matt Campbell does, which is very much so a restricted college offense that doesn't really trust its quarterback. Okay. So again, I think it's, it's going to be interesting for Browns fans. I, I don't think the issue with Lincoln Riley is, is he, is he a good enough coach? Would it work? Um, I think it would be, you know, if there's any kind of risk for a young college coach going to the NFL, it'd be worth the risk for the Browns. The issue is going to be, could they get him to do it? Could they get him interested? So the idea of could Lincoln Riley do it? Yeah, I think a lot of people think he could do it. But I don't know that they're going to be able to get him away from Oklahoma right now. But the last guy on your in your article, John Filippo, has been here in Cleveland, succeeded in Philadelphia, the offensive coordinator now in Minnesota. Again, you wrote a great story on him last year. It seems like to me that, that having viewed him up close – you think this is this guy is really sharp, especially in working with quarterbacks. It seems to me that this is a guy the Browns could get, and everybody loves the up and coming offensive mind quarterback whisperer. What yeah. what makes am I right that you think that John D. Filippo is a guy who has it? And if so, what is it about him that that makes you think he could be a successful head coach and maybe the right guy for the Browns? Yeah, Filippo is my first tech if I'm in the seat. Uh, he's, he's my first call. Uh, and it simply comes down to the fact that I know from, you know, speaking with other people about Filippo and speaking with John, uh, if he doesn't like a situation, like if he looks at Cleveland and he doesn't want to end up there, you know, obviously there's some of the difficulties with the owner and maybe he doesn't really like the way that Baker holds himself, then Filippo just wants to take a job. You know, Filippo. Uh, it makes it very, very clear when he talks about quarterbacks. The number one most important thing about a quarterback is his character. It's how he handles himself. He needs to know the quarterback is the sort of person that's going to put in an unbelievable, unnecessary amount of time, right? I mean, Filippo was famous in Philadelphia for handing out quizzes to his quarterbacks in the middle of the week on the offense. And on the on the upcoming defense, too, so it changed. You know what I mean? Like, they, they had to know by Wednesday or Thursday what they were looking at on Sunday. Uh, and he was, you had to know those places. Like, he just expects an incredible amount from his quarterback. He has a body language fine when he's a quarterback's coach. If you're a quarterback and you make a bad play and you come off, you know, pissing, pissed off and you're you're shrugging your shoulders and you're yelling at your offensive line, you pay a fine to John Filippo because quarterbacks don't handle themselves that way. The entire offense, the entire fan base is looking at you. You have to hold yourself a certain way so they understand everybody. We're still in the game. If we still have a chance here, we're going to be fine. So Dean Filippo is a very meticulous, detail-oriented mind when it comes to quarterbacking. And so it's going to be very important to him his fit with Baker Mayfield and, and what he what he likes and what he doesn't like about how that quarterback, that young quarterback plays. If Dean Filippo feels like he can work with Baker, yeah, you have a guy who got really good play out of Mark Sanchez when he was young, out of Terrell Pryor when he was young, out of Derek Carr when he was young, and a lot of these players leave Dean Filippo and all of a sudden aren't as good as they were. You know what I mean? Like, they really kind of fall off a little bit. He's very, very good at getting young quarterbacks, and even I would say like limited quarterbacks, think Nick Foles in the playoffs. Quarterbacks yep. who have some talent but some weakness. He's really good at getting them into a spot where they can be successful, and he knows how to work on their strengths. Uh, DiFilippo is a great just a leader of men. Everybody has a ton of respect for him. He's young. He's got a lot of energy in that McVay style of mold. And they've been talking about him as a head coach since San Fran was open for Chip Kelly in like 2014, 2015. You know, he's been in the league. They've been expecting him to get a shot. He obviously has a history in Cleveland. He's offensive coordinator there. Uh, DiFilippo is a guy who simply, he uh, he's ready for his shot. You know, the league believes he's one of the next good ones. And I think that a place like Cleveland, which actually is going to have a ton of young, interesting personnel, has a quarterback in place like Baker Mayfield. If Filippo feels like that's his spot, that's the guy you want to help for two to three years, really give him a shot. He's fiery. He's competitive. I, I, I drink the juice. I believe Cleveland was bad if Filippo was at the helm for sure. I think I'm in, Ben. I think I'm in. I think I think I would. You know, it's it's not hard to look at uh, Filippo's resume. Um, and be interested, but to hear you talk about him like that, 
I mean, it's hard sometimes. You know, Hugh Jackson had a great reputation with quarterbacks and offenses when he got here. And it's, you know, it's not just about that. You can't just be good at one side of the ball or with one position group. And you have to be able to lead a whole team. So when you say he's a leader of men and he can get people fired up and that kind of thing, um, I don't I don't know if they can get Lincoln Riley, but it feels like there's, you know, you try to just look at things and say, well, this and that. It just feels like Filippo could make a lot of sense. And like you said, that, if he's if there's something he doesn't like, he won't come. But that if if they go after him and and he sees a quarterback, um, maybe this isn't too complicated. Maybe just bringing him back to Cleveland, you know, it seems kind of obvious. But sometimes sometimes obvious things work, you know. So no, absolutely. And, and I don't know, like with the whole Hugh thing, I can't remember much about when he was hired. But the one thing I know about Dee Filippo, I, I haven't found anybody doesn't like him. You know what I mean? Like, I haven't found anybody who just who uh, who worries about how he is with the media or how he is in a coaching room or whatever. You know, he came up through a lot of good coaches, uh, falling behind a lot of good guys, and so you, 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 uh, from what I understand, there's a lot of belief in him. I'm excited to see him get his shot. He's going to get it. I think Cleveland would be a great spot. Ben Solak, great article, great insight. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. It's it's fun to find a guy um, covering the Eagles who knows so much about. Baker Mayfield, Lincoln Riley, and what's going on in Cleveland. So um, thanks so much for your help, and uh, hopefully we can get you back on sometime. I'd love that, Doug. Thank you, man. Dog pound. I'm excited. Thanks, Ben. And that's it for this Takes by the Lake. Two great guests. So grateful those guys took time to join us here. You can follow Rich Hammond on Twitter, Rich underscore Hammond. Again, he's the L.A. Rams writer for the Orange County Register if you want to keep up with the Rams. And you can follow Ben Solak. At Benjamin Solak, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-S-O-L-A-K. Writes a lot about the Eagles, but also a lot of draft stuff um, at the Draft Network. So keep up with his work. He certainly has a handle, I think, on Lincoln Riley and, and Baker Mayfield that will be useful going forward. Thanks so much to you guys for listening. Interesting times with the Browns, um, as always. But again, I'm, I'm just I'm not going to get... I'm not going to get it caught up in Greg Williams. I'm going to get caught up in the players the rest of this uh, this season. But I, I don't I don't care what Greg Williams does. I care about who's going to be coaching this team next year, and it's not going to be him. So uh, thanks to Ben, thanks to Rich, thanks to you guys. I'm Doug Maurice. That was Takes by the Lake, and we'll talk to you next time. And that's it for this Takes by the Lake. Two great guests. So grateful those guys took time. To join us here, you can follow Rich Hammond on Twitter, Rich underscore Hammond. Again, he's the L.A. Rams writer for the Orange County Register if you want to keep up with the Rams. And you can follow Ben Solak at Benjamin Solak, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-S-O-L-A-K. Writes a lot about the Eagles, but also a lot of draft stuff um, at the Draft Network. So keep up with his work. He certainly has a handle, I think, on Lincoln Riley and, and Baker Mayfield that will be useful going forward. Thanks so much to you guys for listening. Interesting times with the Browns, um, as always. But again, I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get caught up in Greg Williams. I'm going to get caught up in the players the rest of this uh, this season. But I, I don't, I don't care what Greg Williams does. I care about who's going to be coaching this team next year, and it's not going to be him. So uh, thanks to Ben. Thanks to Rich. Thanks to you guys. I'm Doug Maurice. That was Takes by the Lake, and we'll talk to you next time.